Welcome to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast. Today is part one in our special three-part series comparing addiction medicine in the United States and the United Kingdom. Hi, I'm Dr. John Ewing. I started out as a family practitioner. I taught family medicine and was in charge of behavioral medicine. And I came to believe that most human suffering is above the neck. Uh, it's what's going on in the mind that drives a lot of the behaviors that ruin people's health. Uh, so I, after a stint in the ER for oh, about eight years uh, to pay off my student loans, I went into a holistic medicine clinic. And there I took on the challenge of pain medicine, uh, pain management. And uh, lo and behold, I discovered that many people that are on chronic opiate therapy for pain develop substance use disorders. And so I learned how to manage that. And it was profoundly gratifying to watch people transform from utterly miserable back into normal human beings and to rejoin their family. So I ended up going into addiction medicine full time. And I'm currently the uh, director of the University of Wisconsin Health System of Care, um, addiction medicine and also um, two clinics, uh, Meritor Unity Point Health's New Start Clinic and the hospital service there, and also uh, uh, the university's Behavioral Health and Recovery Clinic. So I have a lot of fun and it's very gratifying work. So that's me, Brian. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm uh, Brian Kidd. Uh, I'm uh, retired, uh, retired five years ago from uh, 22 years as an addiction psychiatrist working in Scotland. I'd worked in uh, a small health board area um, in the centre of Scotland in Forth Valley, Stirling, Braveheart country, uh, for seven years. And I was the first addictions consultant there, which says something about how services have developed because I was the first person appointed to an actual addictions post, and that was in 1996. And then in 2003, I moved to NHS Tayside, which uh, also has um, the University of Dundee Medical School and was a clinical senior lecturer in addiction psychiatry and um, the drug addiction uh, consultant covering the whole of Tayside, which is a, an area with a population of just over 380,000. Uh, working alongside an alcohol consultant. Uh, and, um, and in that job, I did a lot of teaching and training, but also um, had a research portfolio and completed a doctorate on uh, treatment outcomes. Other activities I've been involved in, I was a GP before I did this. So um, uh, I, I trained as a GP first and not unlike John, I, I, um, I found that there were certain areas of medicine that appealed to me. And, and I came into psychiatry mainly because of time I liked the fact that psychiatrists seemed to take more time than other doctors did before they came to the conclusion about what was wrong with someone. Um, so more holistic, if you like, more about understanding the whole individual before you embark on treatment. So that appealed to me. And I also, uh, once I established myself as an addictions person, did work with both the UK and Scottish governments on national strategic work and also developed um, national standards for treatment 
and was involved in the development of the two most recent UK treatment guidelines on drug misuse and dependence. And the last one, which was published just in 2017 there, uh, I chaired the group which wrote the, the chapter on medical treatments. And that chapter also introduced for the first time in the UK, uh, diamorphine prescribing as one of the treatment options in UK treatment. That's me. Excellent. So um, just a, a minute for our listeners. Uh, diamorphine is diacetylmorphine, which is, uh, we call it heroin here in the United States. I guess I can go next. This is uh, Dave Nelson. Um, I'm retired too, so I'm really just a bum at this point. <laughs> now, but my background is uh, I spent uh, well, many years, well, about 15 years uh, working uh, in, uh, with our indigenous nations and uh, in substance use and mental health. But, and I gravitated towards um, like what you, you get involved with addictions, but I had a background also working a lot uh, with people with chronic pain issues and helping them deal with that psychologically, how to, how to manage their mind within these things. Uh, my background as a martial artist brought me uh, into uh, dovetailing my field of psychotherapy and uh, martial arts uh, therapy, uh, psychology and how to manage chronic pain. And then began to introduce that into with our with my patients of uh, how to manage the addictions and chronic pain, slowly, slowly getting them off of the opioids, and how do you manage all that anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And so, just before I retired, though, I was uh, hired by the state of Wisconsin as the substance use treatment coordinator, and oversaw a lot of the newer uh, opioid treatment centers throughout the state of Wisconsin, and was a clinical consultant across the state to all of these uh, regions. Um, so I, it, was, it was fun. And again, my background, my doctorate is I'm an apathetic doctor, and uh, which is a nice segue for a lot of uh, psychotherapists who really, what we do is, is natural health and helping people um, work with their mind, work with their uh, reframing all of their adventures that life has taken them on. And uh, so that's where I'm at today. I, mean, I finally retired you know, about five years ago, same as Brian, and I just keep my uh, ear to the ground on things and uh, enjoy working with this group. I'm Kathy Couture. I have uh, MS. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I do psychotherapy. Um, I started out as an undergrad doing an internship uh, with dual diagnosis veterans at the VA uh, substance abuse clinic and vowed I would never work with substance abuse. Uh, and then as life goes, you know, I, I find myself in my current job doing uh, ACM assessments and um, doing what our laws allow me to do in my role um, with people that are dealing with addictions, basically doing the mental health piece around coping skills and alternate behavior choices and things like that. I keep my nose to the ground on what's going on. I listen attentively to you guys when you talk. Um, it's not my favorite area to work in. I really like working with families and parenting and it all ties together so beautifully because if one thing goes wrong, it pops up somewhere else. And the, the reason I didn't like working with addiction was that you can have everything going great and all it takes is one relapse and everything plummets back down to the to the baseline. Hopefully not the baseline, but it goes down and then you have to build it back up again. And I, I personally find that frustrating, but when it works, it's a glorious thing. So that's, uh, that's what I bring to the table is kind of the psychotherapeutic aspect. Very good. So for our listeners, 
ASAM assessment. Uh, that's the American Society of Addiction Medicine. And the ASAM assessment is to determine the level of care most likely to help the person, whether they need one-on-one -on -one psychotherapy, uh, intensive outpatient programs and groups, uh, whether they need residential treatment or hospitalization for withdrawal. So, gee, we've tossed around this word a great deal, um, substance abuse and addiction. So I want to just briefly run by some uh, quick and ready definitions. Uh, basically, uh, in the brain, we have this reward system that kicks out dopamine. All of the substances of abuse that we know of uh, trigger the release of dopamine. And unfortunately, the brain rapidly adapts by starting to inhibit the release of dopamine so that when the substance leaves your body, the dopamine level is low and people lack motivation and often feel depressed. So substance abuse is the use of a euphorogenic substance to a planned degree of disinhibition or intoxication. Use is often within pure norms and serious harm is rare. And this comes from Ted Peran uh, out at Case Western Reserve in Ohio. So then we have this word addiction, which is considered to be pejorative. Um, but we, we still use that. So addiction comes to us from something, somebody without say. So if we drag somebody into court and they have no say in what we're going to do, then they are the, the adicier, the, the one without say. So addiction means that somebody has lost their say over what they're going to do. And basically what that results from is from states of disinhibition. So high levels of dopamine result in suppression of the frontal lobe, which derails people's plans and intentions. And then as we adapt to repeated substance use, there's often withdrawal and the state of withdrawal can also be associated with uh, excess brain excitement and adrenaline, which can also suppress frontal lobe activity resulting in a state of disinhibition. So, uh, substance use disorder is a recurring state of disinhibition as the person alternates between uh, intoxication and uh, withdrawal. And unfortunately, the way that we adapt to these substances often involves pulling recipes out of our ancestral DNA, which then get a bookmark. And that epigenetic mark basically prevents that stretch of DNA from coiling up tightly so it stays fluffy and ready to be used should the person resume uh, drug use. And Kathy uh, alluded to that. And so very often when people lapse back to using their substance, they plummet real, really quickly back to where they were. And in fact, the adaptation is sometimes more profound. And so um, substance use disorders are a remitting, relapsing on chronic illness that is progressive. So, yeah, I would invite Dr. Kidd to uh, add to that. Thanks very much. That's, that's a really nice summary of, 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 of some of the terms that, that we use. I mean, I, I think that definitions are really interesting um, because they do, you, 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 for example, you said addiction is a, a pejorative term or as, as can be seen as a pejorative term. And um, we've found, uh, in, certainly in the UK, that there are certain terms that it seems to be impossible to get people to form a consensus around. One, for example, is recovery. Um, so recovery 
my understanding, and you can correct me on this, but my, my understanding in the US is that recovery really means abstinence. Um, and if, perhaps it doesn't, but our understanding of it is that it does. And we have an idea of the, the sort of 12 step approach of people being in recovery, meaning that they are abstinent. Um, but it, just to give an idea relating to my strategic work, um, the first ever document published in Scotland which used the word recovery was in 2007. So prior to 2007, there was not a strategy in Scotland and in fact in most of the UK which talked about recovery from substance use. And there, there was a huge debate in, in, in the, in, across the whole of the UK about recovery, but it was immediately presented as, um, in fact, there was an excellent editorial uh, which which uh, was uh, entitled The New Abstentionists. And it talked about people using the word recovery and implying that they were clearly abstentionists, i.e. anti-harm reductionists. Mm. Um, so there was a kind of immediate division which happened as a result of these definitions. In my own practice, I've I've tried to step away from most of these terms, actually, although I, I, I you know, I, I, I know what dependency is, but I tend to talk about problematic substance use. And, and the reason for talking about that is because it allows us to say what's the problem. Um, because um, someone could be using a substance and actually they have no problems at all, except that they've, you know, there's now mandatory testing in their workplace. Uh, and they've now been picked up and um, have been told if you don't stop taking substances, you're going to lose your job or whatever. Or um, the police have started doing drug testing on people at the roadside uh, and somebody who's perfectly functional um, in every way but happens to have taken whatever they've taken um, might find themselves at the wrong side of an argument. So, so what's the problem? Why is now that's useful for me as a clinician because that, that one of the questions I can ask someone is, what's the problem? Why have you come to see me today? Sometimes it's because um, the local drug dealer has just been arrested and there's been a swoop and there's no drug dealers in town. And the reason I want treatment is basically because I can't get any drugs right now. But when he gets let out tomorrow, I'm not really interested in treatment. So you know that might be the that the problem might be very might be transient the problem might be my children have just been taken into care um or i've just someone's just reported me for being a, a intoxicated in the street and consequently a bunch of social workers have turned up at my house and told me that i can't look after my children anymore um or whatever so it's, it's what's the problem um seems to be useful um, I do find DSM and, and we, we use ICD, so, so uh, uh, International Classification of Diseases, um, and uh, they're moved, they've just moved from ICD-10 to ICD-11 and there's lots of subtle little nuances of definitions that make things, you know, fit into one group or into another group. And I, I understand, especially as an academic, that that's really important. It's important to know we're, talk, we're comparing like with like. But in this field, it's a bit of a minefield, minefield, perhaps it's a minefield too, but it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a minefield, it seems to me. Um, and, uh, and so problematic substance use is, is where I like to go. That's me for the minute. That makes perfect sense. So one of the things that happens is that people will use substances which often calm them down, slow down the brain, uh, helps them to dampen some of those unwelcome and intrusive thoughts that are often about their limitations and lost opportunities and and barriers and fear and 
So they value that. Unfortunately, part of the adaptation to these substances is an increase in stress reactivity. And so then they are compelled to use the substance repeatedly to normalize that stress reactivity. And so dealing with stress is where psychotherapy and some of our more holistic practices uh, come into play. And I'd invite Dave and Kathy to, to talk about that. Well, Mark, again, I'm very similar to what Dr. Kidd talked about too, is what's the problem? You know, why are you here today? And uh, well, like one of the first questions I would ask someone in session with me is, when you leave here today, what is going to make this session today positive for you? That it was worth your time rather than that it was a waste of my of an hour of my life I'll never get back. So you know, why, what are we really? What's the real problem that you want to have addressed? You know, it could be just getting probation and parole off your back too. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, but it could be more serious. You know, I, you know, as the, I'm going to lose my children or. Or, or whatever, or I've got some serious health issues now. My liver is, you know, really starting to really not do so well. Um, so we take a look at all of these things and really dive into it. And my approach, again, is a really, uh, from a psychotherapeutic point of view, is where are they in terms of their recovery as well? You know, are they in early stages? Do, they ha do we have a, a, a brain to work with at this point in time to do cognitive training? Or do we still are in a behavioral management mode of, you know, just keeping you safe, keeping you you know, here, you know, keep drying out your brain basically or getting out of the opioid fog uh, until a point we can actually begin to do more mindfulness training or cognitive behavioral therapy or whatever therapy is more appropriate for you at that time. So that's sort of, you know, how I would approach things as well. Uh, I try not to look at somebody as so much as this person, I mean, I know they have an, addic an addictive issue or they wouldn't be here. But really again, taking a look at what is not working in their life right now, and what can they do today and next next week to begin to make those changes? And so they can get some early feedback of this stuff's gonna work for me. You know, that, that, that coming to see Dave is not a waste of my time. You know, recovery is not a waste of my time. And uh, so those are kind of things that I try to just sort of using that thread to get people along in recovery which isn't always abstinence. It can be harm reduction as well. And uh, within the United States, there's those two tracks. For me, it was just really about just getting that person to really trust me and that I, I'm, I'm gonna, I can actually do something to help them see their issues. I can't help them, but they, I help just help them to see better and to give them some tools to begin to make some changes. So it's, oh, go it's, a, big, it's a big experiment. <laughs> it really is. You know, so initially, when people are using their substances, their their function is fluctuating, and they're yes. having these recurring states of disinhibition. And during the early phases of uh, abstinence, uh, the dopamine level is low. People lack motivation. Mm -hmm. uh, the adrenaline levels are high. They're a bit jumpy, and uh, they can be irritable and anxious and restless. Um, so. The, the interesting thing is that in medicine, there is a use for opiates to dampen people in, dampen the distress that people have when they're in severe pain. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a definite place for that. And I think of opiates as imitating endorphins and dampening stress. So Kathy here has had a great deal of stress recently and some pain. 
And in the chat, she uh, noticed that she was able to stop using pain medications. And sometimes when people stop using pain medications, there's rebound stress and um, uh, sometimes a, a little bit of a dip in motivation energy. Uh, could you share your experiences uh, with us, Kathy? Well, I can. Um, as, as, you, as you know from previous podcasts and dealing with a stage four cancer diagnosis, and I was experiencing quite a bit of pain. Uh, and I was taking um, oxycodone and Tylenol, which is basically a homemade Percocet. Who knew? <laughs> and it was remarkably effective. <laughs> and they were relatively low doses. And um, it wasn't taking care of all of the pain. And so I employed some cognitive restructuring. I used uh, David's suggestion of uh, using algebra and uh, reconceptualizing what pain was and what pain management was and um, a little divine intervention. And um, I found my pain was lessening significantly. So I, what I did was I tapered because I, I knew enough that if I just stopped, I could have that rebound and I didn't want that. So I reduced taking the opiates, you know, instead of taking them, you know, six times a day, I took them four, then two, then none. And then I went after the Tylenol and started reducing that. And it got to the point where I would, I would get up and walk in the kitchen and where I kept my list of what I took when and when I could take it again. And I go, oh my gosh, I haven't had a Tylenol in six hours. Do I need one right now? Body scan. Nope. Okay. And I'd walk away. So now I haven't even taken a Tylenol in four and a half weeks. Wow. So I'm feeling kind of cocky about it. <laughs> <laughs> you should. <laughs> I have normal aches and pains, what I call normal aches and pains, because I have a 39-year-old brain and a 61-year-old body. And sometimes my body listens when it shouldn't. And and then things just hurt. Um, but that's <clears throat> that I can deal with. It was the the head games that went with the cancer pain that created a lot more suffering than there needed to be. Um, so that was that was my homegrown strategy to avoid the rebound. I just tapered. Um, I did want to speak a little bit to what we were talking about earlier around how we approach the problem behaviors around use. I really liked how you conceptualized that, Brian. Um, I use a lot of motivational interviewing in my work. Um, and I use, I go, I go way back to the, the mid-90s motivational interviewing book where the, my takeaway was what could you do instead that gets you the same result without all the risks of the behavior you're engaged in now. And so a lot of the work I do with people that are dealing with problem drug use is what else could you do that would get you the same result? Could you take working for you? You know, kind of options that way. Also really let the person lead. You know, what what are what are you doing that's a problem? What are people telling you is a problem? What are you willing to do to make it different? You know, because a lot of, of parents will come in and say, I've lost my kids and I want them back. Well, what are you willing to do? Well, I don't have to do anything. They need to give them back. Well, it's not quite how it works. You know, you're you're going to have to now, now you're in a position of having to show them, you know, that you can parent effectively. So, you know, kind of working through that. And then really, really old research by Desi and Ryan out of uh, somewhere in Minnesota, where they did something um, 
self-determination theory. And in that research, there was this beautiful graph on how to take someone from being amotivational and externally motivated to being internally motivated. And it had basically three steps. You listen with empathy. You give them tasks that they can complete successfully. And you give them choices. So I do that a lot with people. You know, how can we set you up for success with choices and tasks that you can successfully, successfully complete? Because I think a lot of um, substance use is the lack of an internal driver. And that's just my humble opinion. I, I mean, this is this is a very interesting conversation, and uh, I, I, what's really what I, what I'm experiencing actually is is it must be the first time I've had a conversation with a group of people who are involved in managing substance use problem, where we're not talking about medical treatments much at all, um, and uh, that's really really unusual, and perhaps that's one of the big differences between um, how you approach the problem in services like your own and how um, in the UK uh, we've tended to approach it. And it was interesting what uh, what Cathy said about uh, how she never wanted to work in addictions. Um, and uh, my experience was exactly the same. So I trained as a psychiatrist in Glasgow and um, I, I, as happens in, a, in general psychiatric training, I rotated into a an addictions um, senior house officer post. So I was there for six months, work, you know, just attached to a team of nurses and a consultant looking after people with addiction problems. And I absolutely hated it. And I hated it largely because it didn't make any sense. So what we did was we saw people who were mainly intoxicated, hugely intoxicated. Scottish people like to be intoxicated. Um, uh, uh, somebody from England once came up to do a talk and said, you Scots really like your stone, don't you? And, uh, and you know, people will take, they take the presents, they take opiates, benzodiazepines and alcohol as a, you know, for breakfast. Um, and uh, the idea is you just dampen absolutely everything down. And what people don't want to do is to peer up over the top of that. So anything you can do to maintain that basic level, that load, um is is what people will pursue and the what's happened is that services have have wanted to be empathic and by being empathic they've spent a lot of time trying to supply people with drugs that allow them to maintain that level of intoxication um and i went to plymouth uh, i went down to the southwest of england for my higher training after i got my membership and um against my wishes was put into an addiction service in Plymouth because it was a small rotation and I had to rotate, you know, you did one year posts and I had to rotate into this post. And the consultant um, was this wonderful um, old hippie basically, uh, who smoked like a chimney and, um, uh, and she was a union psychotherapist. And I suddenly found myself in a service which was hugely overwhelmed by numbers. Um, you know, the demand was huge. The waiting list was enormous. Everyone was working flat out, but they sat down and they discussed people and they discussed them in depth mm -hmm. and they tried to deliver psychological therapies. And some of them were getting psychotherapy, like union psychotherapy. And some of them, you know, we were dealing with social care issues and we were dealing with the criminal justice system and we were all on a, on a sort of shoestring. But it was the most rewarding 
piece of uh, work I'd ever done in medicine. It suddenly felt amazing. And I didn't expect that. Um, and so that ma made me realize that if we can, if we can create services that include psycho, you know, psychosocial, psychological stuff and social stuff, then the biological treatments, the medical treatments, which are actually quite easy, really. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're fairly formulaic, really. There's a little bit of touch there when you're gradually trying to wean people off things like methadone or buprenorphine. But, but in general, it's actually fairly straightforward. You can do it safely. You can do it effectively. You can do all those things. The real job is helping that person to get up over the top, start to do the, what was it, the above the neck work um and uh and get on with it um so i'm i'm really i'm intrigued by the fact that so much psychotherapy is there and i wonder is that just historic is that because of how um your health and social care system has um has historically developed or or wh why do you think there's such an emphasis on on the psychological side of it i, I have an opinion <clears throat> in wisconsin the state we practice in um, there was a division between psychotherapy and addiction treatment. And to do the addiction treatment at a master's level, you had to have this, this very different credential base. And that, that division was there for a very long time at, at my level, master's mm -hmm. level. So for many years, I couldn't treat anyone that had an addiction or a substance use issue because I didn't have that set of credentials, which was time consuming and expensive to obtain. So now they've they've loosened that regulation that's shifted, and now I can treat people that, that have those substance use issues. And you're, and, and you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I, I was the treatment coordinator when that all happened. <laughs> I, I was I was on my uh, my professional board when it happened, so it was like yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. it it was definitely a collaborative group effort to mm -hmm. to because here was this highly trained pool of people that weren't able to access this group of consumers, yeah. and when that gate opened, mm -hmm. I have I I did what I always do, which is I couldn't treat dependence, but I could treat all the other stuff. So I viewed conceptually addiction as a symptom, as content. And my job as a therapist is to go under content and work on process. So I would work on what was under the, the content of the use and not really address it because I wasn't allowed to, but I would work on that process level mm -hmm. a lot around. So tell me more about what that was like to not have this or not be able to do that and how do you manage your pain and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of us in the um, psychotherapy community are really good at working yeah. um, at that psychological level with those issues because we've been kind of dancing around it for years. Well, same here. I, I, was, I was a licensed professional counselor before I had to go get my drug and alcohol license. And um, I did not want to go into addictions either. Uh, it was one of those things like, oh, I'm not going to do that. But uh, well, I was working with the uh, Stockbridge Muncie Nation at the time and Band of Mohicans, and we everybody quit. I was basically the only counselor left in our department, and I did not have a drug and alcohol certification or license. So well, we couldn't find the drug and alcohol counselor, so I, they paid for me to go get my certification. And so then I became dual licensed 
and or could treat both. And uh, so that was sort of my segue into it and found I just absolutely love drug and alcohol counseling. And I had the same experience as you, Kathy, too. It's like I've already been skilled at going underneath and treating all the aspects of addiction without treating the addiction itself. And, but one of the underlying uh, factors that I came across when working with people, especially with opioids, was the chronic pain, the chronic physical pain. And, uh, and then realizing that pain is pain, whether it's physical or, or, or mental, however you want to do that. And, um, and really uh, and finding out that I, we already had all the tools we needed in psychotherapy to manage all, all of this with somebody who had uh, issues with addiction. But again, we had to get them though to that place where they could actually benefit from psychotherapy. And many times that was you like it was the harm reduction, you know, not not pure absence in my point of view. And that was really hard for people. They would they would have so much guilt when they would relapse or have symptom resurfaces. I don't really like the word relapse because uh, when somebody has a uh, who's on who has a diabetes, they if they go back to they don't go off their diet. To me, it's not a relapse. They just need to go back, get back on the diet. Um, so it's really taking a look at reframing a lot of the experiences of people going through addictions. So where I was, where I was uh, working with the state was is taking reviewing even detox. Um, we're looking at that as withdrawal management. We're not helping them because too many people would get through detox and think they're done. And that's just the beginning. We're just helping you withdraw. You're not even you're not even in recovery yet. So we have to get we have to re-educate not only the the consumer but the public as well as to what we're doing. And uh, so I think that helped with me having living in two worlds of mental health treatment and the addiction treatment, dovetailing those and seeing how this really we need to re re, re redo the language of what we do. And, and getting people to really understand what it is they're trying to do. And I'm seeing a lot of correlators between what, what you're doing too, Doc, uh, Brian, in, uh, in Scotland and the United States. You're trying to dovetail all these different, trying to integrate all these different professions so we can talk on the same level and, and really just help people. Thank you for listening to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast. Spirit Lake Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. Learn more at spiritlakewellness.org.